Welcome to Practical Christian Living. He says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Is Peter in some way saying, out of all the things that I saw Jesus do, the greatest of all of those were the sufferings that Jesus went through. It certainly was his greatest work because that's why he came. The greatest work that Jesus ever did was dying for you and me on that cross. He did some amazing things while on this earth as the King of Kings, God in the flesh, man yet fully God. But it was his sacrifice done in complete love, humility, and obedience, his suffering that set us free. 1 Peter 5 holds great wisdom not only for pastors, but for us all. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson, with 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Father, we want to thank you that you have given gifts to the church of pastors and teachers and evangelists. And we pray now as we discuss the, the role of a pastor or the do's and don'ts of a pastor, that you would touch our hearts. I pray for those that are here that are called into ministry. They're called to, to serve you by caring for your flock. I pray that you would encourage them today. Lord, I pray for those that may be thinking about heading into this and aren't really called, that you would touch their hearts as well. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. A hireling runs when an animal attacks the sheep, but the shepherd cares for the sheep. We have been compared to sheep. It's not always the easiest comparison. It's not always the funnest comparison for us to be compared to sheep. But I love that we are called sheep because we have the relationship with the shepherd. Jesus as our shepherd. He said that if one sheep goes astray, he would leave the 99 and he would go after the one. And isn't that a good thought? Isn't that great for us to know that Jesus not only cares about the flock as in the number of people that are saved, but he cares about each individual so much that when someone goes astray, he goes after them and brings them back. And I would say that everybody here has had some experience with that. I said a little earlier that our hearts are prone to go astray. Now, all of us have gone astray to some degree, one degree or another. And Jesus, I know, Jesus came after me. I deliberately walked away from God when I was 18 years old. And Jesus came after me. There was no doubt about it that he did not let me stay away. He was true and faithful to his word as a shepherd. It's good for us to know that we have a shepherd over our lives. Someone that cares about us. Someone that leads us. Someone that guides us to green pastures. Someone that guides us to rest. Someone who wants to feed us who wants us to be healthy, who wants us to be strong, that loves us and cares about us. Now, he is the chief shepherd, but he has given gifts to the church in Ephesians. It says that God, Jesus, gave gifts to the church of apostles and prophets. The Bible says that the foundation of the church was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, and then of pastors and teachers and evangelists. They are gifts to us. When we turn on the radio and we hear a Charles Swindoll or an Alistair Begg or a Greg Laurie, these high-profile pastors are men 
that God has given to the church to shepherd and care and lead for the flock. There, there are also those in local pastors like myself that are given to care and love for those that God shepherds as a co-laborer and much smaller fellowships where a pastor can get to know people on a much more personal level. By the way, I believe that that happens in larger churches too. It just happens with assistant pastors a lot more than it happens with a senior pastor. But some people need that small kind of church. It's not big church bad, small church good, or small church bad, big church good. They're just different. They're just different things that God's doing. And he's placed pastors there to care for the flock. Now, the Bible tells us that well, we'll look first of all at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, The elders who are among you, I exhort. He uses the term elder. He's going to go and use the term shepherd or pastor here in a moment. In the New Testament, a pastor is called basically three different things. Bishops, which is the word overseer, which is a picture of what pastors do. They, they oversee individuals in their relationship with Christ. Uh, elders which speaks of the maturity that is necessary for someone to become a pastor. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're old, but it certainly means that they are mature in the Lord. Uh, the Bible says, don't lay hands on anyone too quickly, and that when you're choosing someone for ministry, not to choose a novice, because they could be puffed up. It can be a prideful thing, all, all of a sudden for people to be listening to you. And James said, let not many of you desire to be teachers, knowing that you incur a stricter judgment. And that's a scary thing. You say, well, I want to be a teacher. I want to be seen by people. I want to be up in front of people. I want to be talking to people. Well, you incur a stricter judgment when you do. And even as I say those words, I get a little butterfly in my stomach thinking about the stricter judgment that I incur as a pastor and a teacher. So Peter knew as he turned his attention now to the elders, to the bishops, to the pastors, to the shepherds, he knew that they needed encouragement. Pastors need to be encouraged. The average still today, how long a person stays, a pastor, is an average of three years. There's people like myself. I've been a pastor for 29 years. I'm going on my 30th year. I actually was a pastor before that because I was a youth pastor for three years before I started uh, as a senior pastor. But there's a lot of people that start to pastor and then bail out. They get into it and they go, I am done. Charles Swindoll said, if you can do anything else but pastor, then do it. <laughs> anything else but pastor then do it and it's only when you can find that you are driven to it that you should still pastor pastoring is a call it is not a career choice if you are not called to it then you're going to find that it is difficult it is hard uh, again Charles Wendall said a pastor's got to have a duck's back it's, things just got to roll off of it because people are going to say things the, the, the general public in general is brutal. Sometimes the things that they say, you go, are you really saying that? I was pretty well equipped, I think, as a pastor when Lisa passed away, but some of the things that people said to me after Lisa passed away were like, wow, just absolutely amazing. I would just say when you're dealing with people in grief, think before you speak. Some of the things people said were like, wow, I just, you know, I just tried to be gracious. Look at them and smile. Thanks for sharing that. 
So he knew that they needed exhorting. He knew that they needed encouraging. And he wanted to encourage them. And the first way that he encourages them is by saying, I, who am a fellow elder. He's saying, I see myself right there with you guys. I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you. And this is Peter. This is Peter 30 years after the resurrection. This is Peter that when people would see Peter and and know him and talk with him, this is not only an apostle, but this this is the leader of the apostles. This is Peter. And so when Peter says to a struggling pastor in an area in Asia Minor, I say unto you elders, I exhort you, I a fellow elder, he's coming alongside of them. He's saying, I'm right there with you. I know what you're going through and I know what you're facing. And out of all the things that Peter could say about himself, he, he says this, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I find that interesting as he gets ready to minister to pastors because pastors need the power of God. Pastors need the anointing of God. Pastors need the discernment of God. Pastors need the direction of God. All the things Peter could say, I'm going to come alongside of you pastors and I'm going to exhort you. Me, Peter, the one that walked on water with Jesus. The one who saw Jesus raise someone from the dead. The one who was called to the inner prayer room in Gethsemane. The one that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He could have said any number of things to compare himself to them. To say, hey, I've got, a, I've got a place here to talk to you guys because I'm a fellow elder. But he says, I've, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Is Peter in some way saying, out of all the things that I saw Jesus do, the greatest of all of those were the sufferings that Jesus went through. It certainly was his greatest work because that's why he came. Oh, he set people free by healing them, but... The greatest work that he did was setting people free of their sins. And that Peter would say, as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter knew about the glory too, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. Because Peter was invited with James and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration where the Bible says that Jesus' robe began to shine brighter than any launderer could make it. And suddenly there was Moses and there was Elijah. And Peter who just couldn't keep his mouth shut. James and John seemed to be okay with the issue. But Peter said, it's good for us to be here. You know anybody that just states the obvious all the time? They're driving down the road. You'll drive by Coco's and they'll go, Coco's. (laughs) Yeah, it's been there for a long time. Target. Yeah, that's been there for a long time too. Peter, it's good for us to be here. Boy, that's some deep thought, Peter. Moses and Elijah just showed up. Jesus just appeared uh, suddenly in his glory. Yes, it's good for you to be here. And eventually God had to interrupt Peter and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter would know what the glory is. There's a glory that's going to be revealed one day. The clouds will part and Jesus Christ will come through in all of his glory. If that hadn't happened for us, one day we will go to him. And we'll see him in all of his glory. And I think that's what makes the worship song by Mercy Me, I can only imagine, the most popular worship song in America today. And it's been that way, by the way, for the last decade because it gives us that thought of seeing Jesus in all of his glory. One day the glory will be revealed 
And I love that the Bible says that we're going to receive the glory we're going to see cannot be compared to the sufferings that we are suffering now. And so he lets him know, I want to encourage you. And so he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. He doesn't say, shepherd the flock of God, which belongs to you. Extremely important for us to understand that the church that we pastor is not ours. It's so easy to get possessive. It's so easy to say, well, we've got a church in this area of town and we don't need any more churches in this area of town. Even among Calvary chapels, so easy for Calvaries to be possessive. Somebody comes and, you know, wants to start a Calvary in a town. They've been there for 20 years and they have four or 500 people. It's a town of a million people and they'll say, well, we've got the town covered. We really don't want you guys to come here. It's one of the reasons that we had the whole idea of sending churches out as reaches because we would talk about sending a young man out into a certain area where we felt like there was a need and we'll talk more about the need in a moment. But we would send them out and sometimes there's a Calvary in the area and they would just start doing backflips. They would just be like, Wah! they'd go absolutely berserk. Now, from my perspective as a pastor, somebody wants to come and start a church across the street from me, I shouldn't care at all. I should understand, you know what? Probably going to be different anyway. They're probably going to be different than me because there's not two of me around in the world. There's not two of them and there's different things that appeal to different people. And so churches can be close by, not really matter. But as far as going and planting a church, I don't want to encourage a young man to go and plant a church by another church. I want there to be an area of need. If there's a large, effective evangelical church we're not going to go plan a Calvary Chapel right next to it. We don't want to. Paul said, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. We want to make sure that there's a need, that we're not just going and siphoning off of that church and planning something that doesn't have a genuine need. However, understanding clearly that it's not Robert's church, it's not Scott's church, it's not Pat's church, it is that we are shepherding the flock that is among us. And the interesting thing about that particular term is that on any given night, the flock that among us could be different. There could be those of you tonight that are visiting. You came with some friends or you've just kind of decided to come. Let's go to Calvary tonight. Let's just go over there. And so now you're being shepherded, but you belong to Jesus. He's the one who is your real shepherd. And we are shepherding the flock that is among us. It says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. That's the word that is translated bishop at times. It's just overseeing individuals in their spirituality. That's the job of an elder. An elder's job is to care for someone spiritually. Hebrews tells us that a pastor must give an account to those that are entrusted to him. So there are certain souls that are entrusted to an individual. Not only do you have a stricter judgment, but you've got to give an account for those that are entrusted to you. So you pray for them, so you love them, so you pour yourself into them. It's not about what you can gain from them, but it's about what you can give to them. It's about the service that you have in being able to, to serve them. He says, serving as overseers. And then he gives three things. And these are three things to do and three things not to do. We could have called this the do's and don'ts for pastors. Number one, not by compulsion, but willingly. Compulsion is simply because you have to. There's not a pastor, a genuine pastor, that has to do it. 
if I didn't want to do this, I don't have to do it. God doesn't want me doing it out of compulsion. Every once in a while, you'll run into a pastor who's like, I really don't like what I'm doing, but I'm called here. I hate this town, but I'm called here. So here I am. Open up your Bibles. <laughs> they're angry. They're grumpy. They're mean. No one wants to be there, right? Listen, you, you are called by God and you feel the call and you respond to the call. And if you come to the place where you say, I don't want to do this anymore, then quit. Just quit. Don't say, I have to do this because I have to do it. No, go get a job at Starbucks. Go do something else. There is a lot of stress in pastoring. There's a lot of stress in dealing with people. There's a lot of stress in dealing with sheep. A sheep attack is an ugly thing. You might not think that it could happen, but sheep can bare their teeth and they can come after you. And if you're doing it not because, if it's not an honest heart of really wanting to care for the sheep, then you're not going to enjoy what you do. So you're not to do it out of compulsion, but you are to do it willingly because you want to. Again, it's not because it's always a blast. It's not because it's always fun, but willingly. That's what God wants out of those who pastor. So there should never be a pastor who would say, I really don't want to be here, but I'm here because God made me be here. And I've heard pastors say that before. And if you say that, well, you're going to have to deal with this verse because God doesn't want you doing it out of compulsion. In fact, I'll go this far. You have complete and total freedom. You should do nothing that you do out of compulsion. You should not give out of compulsion. You shouldn't give financially because you think, if I don't give, God's not going to give unto me. The Bible says, give, and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And so people give out of compulsion, and sometimes pastors will, and if you don't give, then God's not going to give to you. You put yourself under a curse if you don't tithe, they'll say. God doesn't want your money if you're going to give out of compulsion. God doesn't want your time. He doesn't want anything that you do to be out of compulsion. It ought to be because you want to, because you get to, because you're willing. Then he says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So willingly and eagerly, but not for dishonest gain. That with pastoring would come an opportunity for dishonest gain. Boy, have we seen that over the years. There are three areas that pastors can get into trouble. There's money, which we're talking about here. There's sex, and there is laziness. There have been all kinds of pastors that have fallen into this sin. For us as pastors to say, well, temptation is beyond me, is to be in real trouble. There needs to be a sense of battling against things and understanding that anyone can fall into sin. Making sure that there are guidelines so that dishonest gain isn't a part of what happens. And it has happened. I remember back in the 80s with the television evangelists, Remember, they'd be on TV, Tammy Faye Baker, Jim Baker, crying, makeup running. Then there was Tammy. Sorry. Shouldn't pick on Jim Baker. He did write a book called I Was Wrong and really repented over, over what he had done. But I remember when they'd be crying on TV, we need your money, we're going to have to close the doors. I remember thinking, don't tease us, just close them already. Just stop asking for money. Christian TV was nothing more than asking for money. And then finally, when they were able to get in and look at the books, they saw that there was all kinds of fraud taking place. And Jim Baker even went to prison for the fraud that had taken place. I believe that 
A pastor cannot be one who loves money and has a love of money. Now, on the other side of it, a, a pastor is worthy of his hire. The Bible says in several different places. You, you need to pay a pastor for what he does. And pay him, if you're on a board, pay him enough where he can be generous. Don't take a vow of poverty for the pastor. If he wants to take a vow of poverty, then great. Let him take a vow of poverty. But don't take a vow of poverty for him. He ought to be able to. Sometimes, you know, board members that are setting pay for pastors, sometimes they think, you know, they just need to really suffer and, and not, you know. Give them enough to where when the check comes for lunch, they can actually reach for the check and be able to buy lunch for the guy where they themselves can be generous. So there's a balance, but obviously not dishonest gain. Being able to be paid for what you do is one thing. Dishonest gain is another. And then it says, but eagerly, out of an eagerness to do what God wants us to do. May we pastor with, a, with an eagerness, just eager to see what God does and will do and willingly. And then he says, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. Now we get the idea that there are certain individuals that are entrusted to you. Now, how are they entrusted? He says, not as lords over them. How are you guys entrusted to me? as a pastor or to the pastors that are on staff. You choose. You get to come and see if this is a place you want to be, if this is a place that God has called you to be, and you can choose to be here. You, you might come and go, I don't want to be here. This isn't the church that I want to be at. Then you don't have to be here. You get to choose. And when you choose, then you get involved. Then you give of your time, of your resources. Then you pray for them. Then you get involved. And those who have chosen to send under a certain ministry, probably moved by God to some degree. I think this is a God thing, bringing us together, like-mindedness in ministry. There's just something about a kindred heart. God does that, where he brings people together that think alike. And he puts us under a care of a pastor. And that pastor now is entrusted and has to give an account for what's being said. But he's not to lord over those. What would it mean to lord over? To lord over is when you begin to tell people what they do, should do, and what they should not do. You begin to tell them who they should marry, what church they should attend. If you find yourself in a church that starts to tell you, this is the only church you can go to and really serve God. We're the only church that really serves Him. It's time to leave that church and go find another church. What makes up a cult? The first definition of a cult is that their theology is wrong concerning Jesus. A cult does not believe in the unique deity of Jesus. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is God, that he laid aside his glory for a time. He became a little lower than the angels. And the, well, the Bible says, and God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the, the theology. A cult teaches that Jesus either is not God, like the Jehovah Witnesses, who teach that he was a prophet, he was a good man, he was the best man that ever lived, but he's not God. Or like the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons, who teach that Jesus is not uniquely God. When you're talking to a Latter-day Saint, they will tell you, oh, we believe that Jesus is God. What they don't tell you is they believe that you can be God the same way Jesus is God. So the theologically, that's what makes a cult a cult. But there's something else about a cult. A cult is overbearing. A cult is controlling. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.